Hey there, it's Alex Steed, co-host of Wire Duds. Thank you so much for joining us. My co-host Sarah Marshall will join us for the proper episode in a couple minutes. In the meantime, I just wanted to welcome you to Wire Duds, which is a show about uh, figuring out what it's like to be kids of uh, dads. <laughs> what it's like to have grown up with or without dads, with good dads, with bad dads, with dads generally. It's an excuse for us to talk about feelings and to do so by way of talking about movies that we love and that you love, or maybe, you know, maybe that we just all know about. So for this week's episode, we talked about Pretty in Pink with our friend Julie Klausner. Julie is an author, a comedian, an actor, a podcaster, a writer. She was in the great sitcom Difficult People with Billy Eichner. Just absolutely fantastic. And she helped birth Billy on the Street, which is one of the greatest, <laughs> greatest shows. Julie has been podcasting for uh, years with the great How Was Your Week with Julie Klausner. And she's written Art Girls Are Easy, which is uh, a young adult novel that came out a while back. She's done it all. She's fantastic. We were so lucky to have her and so lucky to have her talk about, uh, among other things, comedy writers. <laughs> now that plays into Pretty in Pink. So like I said, we talked about Pretty in Pink. Lots of conversation about Ducky. Lots of conversation about Andrew McCarthy. Lots of conversation, of course, about Molly Ringwald, the legacy of the Brat Pack the legacy of John Hughes. We covered all sorts of bases. This is an episode we're talking about because, as Sarah will talk about uh, in a couple of minutes, it's prom season. It's right around prom season. We wanted to get into prom, and here we are, talking pretty in pink. I had a wonderful time. It was so incredible to have Julie on the show. She was a fantastic presence. Before we begin, I just want to let you know that Wire Dads is made possible with support by Knack Factory, which is a video content production company based in Portland, Maine, that does work throughout these United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. And it's also made possible by you all. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. We appreciate it so, so much. Patreon.com slash WireDads. Uh, we have uh, occasional bonus episodes over there, you know, a couple times a month. We'll have something up there again soon. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's made possible with your support. So we, we really appreciate that. Wire Dads is a show that happens because of you, and we're glad you're here for conversation. And if, if anything you do to keep us going is greatly, greatly appreciated. I think that's it for this intro. That's it. That's all you need to know before we get into Pretty in Pink. In the teen movie that dared to play Harry Dean Stanton in the role of a father. <laughs> if that doesn't lay out what this show is all about, I don't know what does. All right, let's go do it. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. We're so lucky today, Sarah why do you think that is? <laughs> because it is Carolyn's birthday today. <laughs> and also because we are going to talk about Pretty in Pink yes! with Julie Klausner. Woo. Hi, Julie. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. Thank you for being here. And... You have been making the internet a better place for a very long time, in my opinion. This is true. Thank you, Sarah. But to be honest, it was pretty much perfect anyway. That's true. <laughs> I can't imagine how it could have been improved upon. And yet. And yet you did it. You added some sparkle. Sarah, Julie was just telling me that you picked this movie. I didn't realize that. What? Why? Well, uh, 
right before Julie and I talked about her coming on the show, I had one of my brainwave moments where I was like, Alex, I want to do movies in the spring about prom because it's spring and we need to tell ourselves that it's spring and summer is coming and we're going to graduate into the world and leave this life of confinement. We got to do a movie about prom, basically. And so Pretty in Pink... Julie, I suggested that to you, right? And Well, we were talking about movies that take place in the spring, which is such a strange season, because when you think about, I mean, it's funny because the two Jewish holidays are in the transitional months. There's Passover <laughs> and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, like the high holidays that are usually in the, you know, September. And and then when you think about what movies, movies generally take place either in the summer or the winter. There's summer movies and then there's Christmas movies. Mm. Yeah. I think the transitional months are a little more challenging. So yeah. we were talking about the spring and what movies take place in the spring. And we were talking about graduation. I like that you say prom and not the prom because this is the ultimate movie that makes sure people know it's prom. <laughs> what about prom? <laughs> and then, of course, there's Jesus Christ Superstar, which is the ultimate uh, spring flick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sarah, can you explain to us what uh, Pretty in Pink is about? Pretty in Pink is the return of the Jedi of the Molly Ringwald trilogy, which is a joke that Harmony and BJ over at This Ends at Prom may have made. I can't remember. <laughs> Either they made it or I somehow thought of it, but it seems like they're kind of joke. And this is the return of the Jedi, though, because it's the one where it kind of ends with a bunch of Ewoks partying, and you're like, oh, that's the end of the trilogy. And you feel a little bit hollow, and it's a little bit weird, mm. but it's also really wonderful to watch and really charming and has a lot of really fun characters, and it is about horrible men with wonderful outfits, a girl named Andy who is close to high school graduation, kind of wanting to go to prom and really liking this guy named Blaine for some reason we are told and him asking her and then unasking her to prom and then she goes to prom by herself and then he's there at prom and then he's like Andy I love you and you're like what <laughs> and then they kiss and that is the movie and it is just like I grew up watching this movie I grew up loving Molly Ringwald. It is like, it is very by the book and it's a very weird film. And it's also a movie where Harry Dean Stanton has second billing. A teen movie where Harry Dean Stanton has second billing. That's what it is. <laughs> we got to get the kids in the door. Put Harry Dean's name second. <laughs> Julie, what's your relationship with this movie? I, I have a very emotional attachment to this because in my adolescence... Before I was in high school, which I think is when high school content is most impactful, mm. it was aspirational in the romance of it. And I also, I think anyone watching this strongly identifies with Andy. And it played into a couple fantasies of mine. One is Andrew McCarthy and James Spader fighting over me. <laughs> but there's also something to the idea of just sort of being invisible and weird and then all of a sudden you're being courted by this guy that you haven't said two words to, but he's really cute. And mm. mm -hmm. I remember it being, growing up thinking of it as a romantic aspirational movie 
But now I, you know, I see it through the dad lens and I see it through the John Hughes lens. I think it's a, a very rare example of a male filmmaker identifying with a female lead in a way that is so tangible and impressive. It shouldn't be impressive, but it is. Mm-hmm. And I still love it. I watched it again last night and I still, I, I, I cried. Guess when I cried, Sarah? Uh, when Andy and Annie Potts dance together. <laughs> I cried when, she, when I saw what she did to that dress. I said, oh God, <laughs> you had two, you had two beautifully structured, like mid-century and you managed to make a potato sack. Congratulations, Andy. <laughs> That dress was supposed to be a monument to bad choices and prom is that too. And it was all like performance art. That's all I have. She looked great in it and I will leave it at that. Yes. (laughs) Alex, what is your relationship with this movie? Oh, yeah. I grew up with all the Hughes movies as a kid and, and loved them all. Mm-hmm. And I saw them like strictly as text for most of that time of my life and saw them as aspirational. Like I wanted to like the breakfast club mm-hmm. in particular, like the breakfast club is my yes. big Hughes movie. And I think because this movie spends so much time with Molly Ringwald as the main character, I related less to this movie than I did with The Breakfast Club, where I just related mm-hmm. to like a bunch of like people who were like who felt like they were on the outside. But I related strongly to Ducky as someone who had a lot of similar tendencies, a lot of similar mm-hmm. approaches to things, etc., which is why it broke my heart to realize how much Ducky sucks watching this movie this time because he's so great and so well played and so iconic in so many ways. Yeah. But his approach towards girls... You gotta stop riding your bike past her house after the 50th time. Either he has a come to Jesus like I did at some point in my 20s or he becomes a red pillar. And, uh... Oh! <laughs> well, Ducky is confusing because they changed the ending. They rewrote yes. it. And you can feel that. And it's like he shows up at prom and he and Andy reunite. And I feel like they kept that from when... That seems like it's from the original footage. It is. Because right. it's like, Ducky, you're here. Okay, yeah. And then they go in and he's like, go be with him. And you're like, what? What? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I feel like it could have been better rewritten. And he could have had like a scene with Harry Dean Stanton where he like figured things out. And he was like, I love her and I have to let her go or whatever. You know, yeah. or I'm gay, which is what Molly Ringwald maintains the character is because he's based on right. her friend who was gay. Which, you know, certainly redeems that character also. And I get like that he's he's coded as gay. And I was saying when I was talking about this on Twitter, like the first two men that I adored in my childhood were, and I kid you not, Vincent Price and Paul Lind. Like, oh, that makes sense. I loved Paul Lind, too. I loved him as Templeton. <laughs> you kid me not. Yeah. Riddle me this. Why would you not? Where the fuck was Charles Nelson Riley? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Ducky as a coded, coded queer character resonated with me when I was super young. And I think mm. that what stuck out to me but the way they compensated for him being straight yeah in the text is creepy right because he's just like girl 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 this girl this girl you can be my fourth girl and it's like oh shit dude settle down but i also understand if he's trying to cover some stuff up we get whatever that's but ducky's aggression is wild it's complicated and it was really interesting for me to kind of return to this movie after some years and think about how important 
Molly Ringwald specifically was to me when I was a teenager, which is kind of funny because I was in high school between 2002 and 2006, and there was good teen media in that time. Like, that was Mean Girls came out during those years. That was an important film. But Mean Girls also exemplifies the look of the period, which is, like, smooth, shiny hair, smooth, shiny torso, Abercrombie cami, and, like, smooth, shiny <laughs> jeans. These porpoise girls. Mm. It was really selling that image. And a lot of these teen actors really looked harvested yeah. by that time. Like, they had really gotten the science of, like, breeding laboratory teens, like, down. On the, on the Disney Channel. On the Disney Channel and on Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. They came from that, that farm. They had, like, a Bella Caroli, like, teen talent factory going. Yeah. yeah, the ones that look like Bratz dolls move on to the next pageant. I did this project last year on telling the, the history of CMT, the country music channel, and how mm-hmm. it relates to TNN. And Wh- Where did TNN go? Does it still exist? It became Spike TV. <gasps> Whoa. But what ended up happening is like Clint Black and like that whole new crop of like country stars from the, from the early 90s came out of the fact that they started televising all of the country heroes from the 80s. And just think about like country musicians from the 80s. They all just look like speed-addled train wrecks. It's it's like Merle Haggard is like 50 years old. You know? like, like he really does look like a Haggard Merle. Yes, exactly. And by the time they're televised, they're like, shit, we need to get like good looking people into this. Naturally, they discovered Garth Brooks. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> he, who was part of that class, like Garth Brooks and Clint. But what a weird collection of people that very much started to manifest in a huge way with like teen movies in the early aughts. Like that's such a yeah. good, good point is that like by the time t- teens were televised for two decades, they looked like porpoises, as you said. Yeah. I don't think we should have factory farmed the teens in that way. And like, <laughs> these are not super realistic teens. Like, everyone has beautiful skin in this movie, for example. There, no bad skin in sight. But, like, Ducky is also a character who I think comes off jerky because he just has more energy than he knows what to do with because he's a teen. Just speaking to the teen movie of it all, I think this movie is outstanding. Or maybe I don't know if it's outstanding. I just love it because I think it's appealing to adults and people that aren't teenagers and there's certainly themes of youth and being Mm -hmm. and how much high school sucks and adolescence and growing up and being afraid to and figuring out how to get what you want but at the same time there's Andy's and by the way I don't mean to leap to the end of the podcast but Andy's the daddy. I mean, Andy's the daddy. <laughs> and Andy, Andy is so smart and such a grown-up that when she ended up with Ducky. And by the way, I I think it's interesting on this show how you guys don't talk too much about the like behind the scenes production, like what mm. happened in the like originally this and that. They did a test screening where she ended up with Ducky and the audience booed. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel right. It does and like I feel like John Hughes, like Ducky reminds me of um Anthony Michael Hall's character in The Breakfast Club, where he's written as someone who's not ready for a relationship. He he wanted Anthony Michael to Hall to. Oh, did you? Oh no! Oh, never mind. I've been giving the guy too much credit for twenty years. This I think is fascinating. Yeah, John Hughes wanted Anthony Michael Hall. He was not available. Molly Ringwald wanted Robert Downey Jr., which would have been great. He would have been able to pull off the ending of her with Ducky. Yeah, she and John Cryer's Ducky have. No chemistry beyond the fact that she's 
his friend and he's kind of her annoying, quirky friend who says he has a crush on her. But does he mm-hmm. really? Because does he really know what that means? And what do you think of the scene where Ducky and Steph fight? I love it. Me too. And I was also like, the answers to both of your problems are currently balled up in your fists, <laughs> you jokers. They just had to go at it and not talk for a second. Yeah. And then, Alex, you were speaking of a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. Tell us what you learned about Some Kind of Wonderful. Yeah, Some Kind of Wonderful. So John Hughes like produced this movie, right? He didn't direct Pretty in Pink. He, he wrote it and... Having watched the DVD extras, it seems like the it was a director's first time he had been cutting trailers before this. So I think John Hughes had had an eye over his shoulder to some extent. Mm. Yeah, and he and so John Hughes wanted the end to be that Andy ends up with Ducky, which the studio fought over, and the studio probably fought based on that. What Julie said about the test screening, I'm sure if they saw that, that was the response, and the idea was that Ducky was too much. It was too much of like a brother like relationship, and it was weird. He's such a little brother. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, they don't not have chemistry, but they have, like, little brother chemistry. Right. And, like, if it was, like, Robert Downey Jr., it would be a no-brainer, because obviously... Well, and then he was with Molly Ringwald and the Pickup Artist the next year, which is a movie almost no one saw. And they do have chemistry... It's coming out of their ears. They do. So. so so, John Hughes' response to not getting his way was remaking the movie which, in, in the form of some kind of wonderful, which had a lot of the same dynamics, the same sort of the, the original ending that he wanted ultimately happens. In, and he asked Molly Ringwald to be in that movie and Molly Ringwald would not be in the movie. And that's there's two stories about them having a falling out. And like that's one of the stories of their falling out. And another one which sounds wrong is that... Um, um, she gave John Hughes too many notes on one of the projects that they worked on, which like to me sounds really blamey. Like it's like mm. she, I feel like you could just blame actresses for like giving, being too difficult in the eighties and up through probably this year still and write them off entirely. But it's one of these two things. And in theory, it's because she didn't uh, show up in some kind of wonderful to remake a movie. She was just in the year before. From my understanding and my instinct based on what I know about, her relationship to John Hughes, it seems like he took her not being available very personally. Mm-hmm. As far as too many notes, he was very, very inclusive of her, not just as a muse, but as a collaborator. She was the one mm. who cast Andrew McCarthy. <clears throat> he really not only identified with her, not only was inspired by her. It's funny, I was thinking about these director, actress, muse combinations. And <clears throat> very often you just see, oh, Tarantino's in love with what Uma Thurman can do. Mm -hmm. And in this case, John Hughes is not only in love with what Molly Ringwald can do, but is able to put him. He just he just sees himself in her in a way that I just think is I think I said that before, but I think it's pretty it's pretty rare. It is. I I always find it interesting, actually, when male authors like seem capable of reaching a new degree of depth or humanity when they write through a female protagonist like or just empathy Richard Yates did with the Easter parade yeah empathy there's something that maybe becomes accessible through that writing exercise that you wouldn't get any other way Sarah, you just reread that that New Yorker article. The one Molly wrote. Yeah. Yeah. What were your takes on that? It's been a it's been a minute since I've last read that. I'd love to hear what you thought. It's a really good article. I feel like I should just read you guys a little bit of it to jog our memories. Can we do that? Yes. And this was 2018, I think, after Yeah. It was sort of in the perspective of Me Too after John Hughes had died, I think. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I have a passage. A meeting was arranged, we hit it off, and I filmed 16 candles in the suburbs of Chicago the summer after I completed the ninth grade. Once we were done shooting and before we began filming The Breakfast Club, John wrote another movie specifically for me, Pretty in Pink, about a working-class girl navigating the social prejudices of her affluent high school. The film's dramatic arc involves getting invited and then uninvited to the prom. In synopsis, the movie can seem flimsy. A girl loses her date to a dance, a family forgets a girl's birthday. But that's part of what made them unique. No one in Hollywood was writing about the minutiae of high school, and certainly not from a female point of view. According to one study since the late 1940s in the top-grossing family movies, girl characters have been outnumbered by boys three to one, and that ratio has not improved. That two of Hughes' films had female protagonists in the lead roles and examined these young women's feelings about the fairly ordinary things that were happening to them, while also managing to have instant cred that translated into success at the box office, was an anomaly that has never really been replicated. The few blockbuster films starring young women in recent years have mostly been set in dystopian futures or have featured vampires and werewolves. And there's a lot more, but I do find it really interesting that that's true. Jesus. (laughs) Shady Molly, Shady Molly. (laughs) The unsinkable Molly Ringwald. I love her. (laughs) Redhead Hall of Fame. Well, and then she goes on and talks about, you know, revisiting these roles that, you know, made her career and talking about that and talking about that's true. And also, you know, I play a character in The Breakfast Club who just gets verbally and sexually harassed the whole time and then is like, that was great. Let's have a relationship or something. Mm -hmm. And this act of figuring out what to do with the material. And she talked about it in terms of watching it with her, her daughter today. Yeah. Figuring out how to explain or not explain things. I feel, do we feel like Pretty in Pink probably held up the best of the movies that she was in with regard to stuff that you'd have to explain to your daughter? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there's the, the least amount of actual assault. Rapey or uh, creepy xenophobic shit from yeah. 16 Candles with date, with not date rape, it's rape rape. Outside of just like stuff where our framing of what is heroic and what is not, I think maybe has shifted slightly. Like I think that, yeah, Everything here checked out for the most part. I was like, this doesn't creep me out in many, if any, ways. Sarah, what made you think of this for the dad theme specifically besides, I mean, obviously the Harry Dean Stanton. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that was when I cried, was when he asked, am I doing okay? Oh my God, it's so good. Because mom's not here. Yeah. I mean, for me, really, it's mainly that Harry Dean Stanton, like of every dad in every movie, with the exception of Quint from Jaws, who is not a dad character, like looks and acts like my dad the most of almost any fictional character I've ever seen. And like the scene where like he and Ducky are talking on the lawn, like I have, that's just like, that is him. That's what it looks like when he's like talking to like a boy that I would bring over or really anyone, you know, just this sort of leathery, thin man holding court on a lawn chair, you know. And also, you know, watching it for this, just thinking about how like Blaine's excuse for not taking Andy to the prom is, you know, his parents partly. And I don't know, he's so underwritten a character that I feel as if that could be a lot stronger and the fact that it isn't really is interesting. And also, it's interesting that Ducky has no parents and lives in an abandoned house or something. (laughs) 
yeah, you would never meet Blaine's parents. Blaine is such a interesting like tabla rasa. He's completely based on what your feelings are as Andrew McCarthy, and <laughs> I love Andrew McCarthy. I love him. He, he he looks at the girl he's falling in love with in those movies, and you feel him looking at you. He is so mm. good at reacting and just sort of absorbing. It, like infatuating in real time mm-hmm. that it still does it for me. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, and I know he's underwritten and I know it's hard to understand. Why does she, I mean, why at, at some point they're exchanging, I love you's and you're like, what have you guys, what do you know about each other? But when he stands up in the computer lab and smiles at her, Oh, forget it. Forget it. <laughs> so I want to talk about Harry Dean Stanton so much, but I also want to touch on on, on this with Blaine. Like, yeah, and it's so good to hear that take, Julie. That like it's like there's something in the way that he looks, which is yeah. is looking at at her, and like that is part of the appeal. Because honestly, there were times when I was like, he, "You're being fucking inappropriate." Like, she's asked you to leave this party like five times. You've said that you'll take her anywhere, but you won't take her to any of the places that you said. <laughs> Blaine isn't that bright. <laughs> no. He's not a bad guy, but he's not that smart. And Andy is so smart. Yeah. So, and she kind of knows that he's limited, I think. <laughs> um, and she stands up to him and calls on, you know, calls his bullshit. But yes, no, Blaine is not. He did pull off that, dyna- I'm sure at the time, dynamic computer instant message trick, which I would have blown someone's mind in the computer lab sending a picture. <laughs> even know how he i think he learned that from his friend uh david lightman star of war games <laughs> oh can we talk about a uh, bizarro world ferris bueller ducky yes. because when he looks when he looks at the camera at the end when he looks down the barrel yeah and these are the very ferris bueller outfits actually yeah i've met a million guys like ducky i don't necessarily think that he i mean there's a world in which he's gay there's a world in which he wasn't i just know I still know guys like that. Mm-hmm. But yes, there's a world in which Matthew Broderick played Ducky and their mm. dynamic would have been different then too. Totally. So going back to Harry Dean. Yes. Sarah, talk us through what you think that casting was like and why they went for Harry Dean Stanton. It's a, such a bold move. I don't know whose idea this was. I honestly think he's playing a character very similar in a way to his character in Paris, Texas, Yeah. who is also a man who has never gotten over his wife walking out the door and is, you know, consumed by longing. And I just feel like someone (laughs) watched Paris, Texas, (laughs) which is a wonderful movie. And they're like, that was great. We should get him for a teen movie. (laughs) And then they did. But isn't he like a beautiful example of someone who's worn down but won't stop fighting he's so vulnerable and but he's not passive yeah no i love him he's just broken and fighting back even though he's just swimming against the tide yeah and he has second billing in this movie and that makes sense like there's the most relationship is between well between andy and her dad and between andy and iona actually i think are the two most interesting relationships to me yeah the thing that stuck out to me with him that I, I realized this time and, you know, probably from a year of doing the show at this point is that I am also a person who grew up with my dad after our mom left our house or my mom left the house. Mm. And so how much of my dad being the way he was after that, I realize now in retrospect was him being broken from 
of relationship falling apart and not ever really dealing with it and watching her call him on it and, you know, kind of force a reconciliation with the fact that he's not really processing it is so beautiful because like, she's not just a good parent to him and he's so lovely in response. Like he could be so fucked up, Mm -hmm. but he's just regular fucked up. He's not like above level fucked up, but it's so lovely what they have. And it's so lovely that she's able to bring it to his attention because God, I wish I had the language to talk to my dad at 16 Mm -hmm. and be like, Hey, Dad, you got to fucking get over this or you're going to be miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Andy is so good at expressing her emotions. Yeah. Yeah. She and Blaine have no sense of humor, which I also think is an interesting thing the two have in common. Mm. When Ducky said it's called a sense of humor, you should try it. They're nice. It's like, you're right, but she's just not built that way. (laughs) (laughs) And as someone with a sense of humor, I could tell you, I'm terrible at expressing what I feel in a healthy way. Mm. When she screams at him, what about prom, Blaine? I'm like, this is such healthy communication. This is a woman who knows what she wants, knows what she deserves, and knows that she's been done dirty. That's the thing about the Molly Ringwald characters. Like, you just, if you're me, or if you're a lot of people, you just always love them so much. (laughs) As long as Blaine isn't a huge piece of shit, which I actually have a thought about in a second, but Mm. you want her to be with Blaine because that's what she wants and you love her. We start out, we meet her, we know she hates high school, she wants to go to prom, and she has a crush on this hot, rich guy. And because we love her so much, it was like Iona's invested in her getting what she wants too. Mm -hmm. The Blaine of it all, (laughs) with him having done something unforgivable which he does by disinviting her to prom because he cares mm-hmm. too much about what his rich friends think. And like ghosting on her or attempting to because yep. he's a big old baby. He's a, he's a wuss. Is in theory unforgivable, but not that that last scene is beautifully written or makes a ton of sense, but it is emotionally <laughs> makes a ton of sense. And also please try not to look too hard at Andrew McCarthy's wig in that prom scene because he had shaved his head he was in a play at the time where he was in the army oh they had to reshoot (laughs) you know what's funny is that i knew that he i know he's lost weight before they did reshoots and i always look for it and i just can never tell i'm like he just always looks like he's just lost some weight and is a little bit overwhelmed (laughs) like i said if you don't you're not paying attention to the words as much as you're just sort of seeing her get what she emotionally wants and you forgive Blaine because she forgives Blaine. Yeah. But I was thinking about this in terms of being John Malkovich because Catherine Keener <laughs> does something unforgivable. And that he, she does several things that are unforgivable. But we have to forgive her so that we get what we want or the characters we love get what they want at the end. So the screenwriter kind of has to push through that. And it's not easy because on the page you're like, well, Blaine's a total piece of shit. He doesn't deserve her. But with a combination of casting and chemistry and what people want to see, it just had to be that way. Mm-hmm. Do we f- firmly believe that Andy wants to end up with Blaine or is this just a class 
thing. Do you think she wants to rob his parents' house and get all their jewels? No, 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 no. It's just so much of this is about, like, I could never be accepted. I'm poor. They're rich. They think this about us. I think this about them. It's, I'm poor even though my dad doesn't have a job and we're doing fine and eating eggs and I have a car. It's the 80s. We're poor in the 80s, I guess. And it's strangely Marxist for such a neoconservative filmmaker. Alex, I have the answer to your question in the scene where she drives around with Ducky and, and marvels at those houses. She never went to that right. neighborhood before. She never even thought mm. about wanting a house or wanting to be inside of that house or what it was like to be rich or what that might be like until she met Blaine. Mm -hmm. She is interested in Blaine for Blaine. She is a socialist. Why else would she be wearing those glasses? Well, and that's the thing is like, I don't think she wants to end up in this place. I think she just wants to be accepted by people that she doesn't think that she doesn't. She wants to be with Blaine. She wants to fuck Blaine. And I do too. Yes. Yeah. Fair. In a barn. I want to fuck Blaine in a barn. I want to fuck Steph in his parents' house. We haven't talked enough about Iona. We haven't talked enough about Iona. We haven't talked about Steph enough to my liking. So who is Iona? I was thinking today that Annie Potts had at least three that I can think of iconic roles in the 80s, which is very impressive. Most people only get one. And she was Janine in Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2. Mm. She was Mary Jo in Designing Women. The best. Which is one of the most important sitcoms of our time. And she was Iona, the record store manager who Andy works for in Pretty in Pink. And I realize that Iona is like exactly my age. She says she's 15 years older than Andy, so she's 32 or 33. And I was like, yeah, that's, I feel like I'm at the Iona stage. And she's like a role model of adulthood that doesn't suck. She's only 32 in the movie. <laughs> Yeah. Like she talks like she's like an old maid. <laughs> Alex, I'm very old. <laughs> First of all, it shows that Andy could be a really good friend and a really good girlfriend, that she's mm -hmm. not just a boy's girl, I think. I think she also is able to supplement things that she doesn't get from her mom with other relationships in a way that her dad can't. Mm, that's such a good point. If her dad worked in a record store or something, he could have a nice... Yeah, you're right. Wow. Yeah, Andy is so smart. She's also able to figure out... She, I mean, she can find... She finds cool people in her shitty suburb. That's a skill. Mm. And she she's scrappy. She figured it out. I think part of my Ducky frustration about Ducky being sort of the most iconic part of this movie is I think Iona should be the most iconic part of this movie. Right. <laughs> it's like 32-year-old record store manager who uh, has at least four different looks that manifest in this movie and mother mother this girl uh, and fucks a lot. Like, just fucks. Like, that's what she loves doing and encourages this girl to do. Like, I love everything about this character. And at the end when she's like, I look like a mother. Like, you look like a stand-up comedian. <laughs> You look like Don Johnson. <laughs> she should be standing in front of a brick wall. I love both of your takes of what she looks like. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people look like Don Johnson in this movie. I love when she says, I, lo I love when, I forget exactly what the exchange is, but Andy's like, this nostalgia is going to kill you. And she's like, I loved the big chill. <laughs> <laughs> all, the, all the pop culture references in it still hold up. The the Madonna yeah, jokes, they I, it, oh, they, yeah. there's because they're coming from smart, cool people who 
it's it's such a cool movie. Can we say that? How cool it is. It is. A re- yeah. The I mean, we just talked about Blue Valentine, and I'll say about this the same thing I said about that because it has the very rare thing of like all these houses look lived in all these places look real like the outfits are beautiful but they truly do look like the kind of things that teenagers would put together and I know because my personal style was influenced by this film and I tried out some stuff (laughs) 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 I was doing a lot of layers (laughs) I want to talk though about Blaine in the context of Steph who Uh we haven't talked about who Sarah has some suggestions about via Twitter which I very much agree with and we'd love to hear uh, we'd love to hear our Steph thoughts. Well, Alex, as you know, I'm trying to get back in the habit of writing again and trying to do so by writing fan fiction. And I was like, <laughs> I should write some Steph and Blaine fan fiction because I feel inspired. Because I just watching it this time, I went in. I was like, I just feel like Steph. It, this is all about Blaine for him, and I hadn't really watched the whole movie thinking that before I always went with the thing of like well he hits on Andy and I don't think he's uninterested in her but like I just like the way he looks at Blaine now I just feel like I'm like these guys like at some point they had some kind of a fling like summer camp like years ago recently I don't know what but like there is something happening and like this girl is a pawn yeah I mean there's definitely that a separate piece homoerotic let's go shoot skeet Let's go be blonde together. Let's go fuck girls next to each other and look at each other. (laughs) (laughs) To Julie's points earlier about talking about how Andy just like speaks the truth. That's a crippling thing to Steph. Like Steph lives in another world where the truth is not a part of it. And so like everything about Andy, he immediately, immediately hates because she turns him down and she tells the truth. And these are like horrendous things to him. I love James Spader. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I think he's so fucking sexy and he is. Me too. <laughs> Steph was so formative to me sexually and I definitely think there's a straight line between his character in Pretty in Pink and his character in Secretary. I think they're the same guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's the same guy. <laughs> I think that he's playing Steph with a little bit more swagger as he got old, he got colder and more internal. Mm. It's so funny, like, who in high school seems like they are from another planet and who in high school seems like they are 47 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Those girls that bully her on the volleyball like I'm sorry these what are these middle-aged women like not no offense (laughs) obviously they're gorgeous there's a certain amount of like 80s you know hair crisping and tanning that ages one it's just such a funny amalgam of but that I guess that's what high school is is some people seem like adults and some people seem like kids yeah and what is Steph in that case he's both an alien and 47 years old in this case honestly he it makes my underpants explode I mean I can't I know that's disgusting and I and I know that like there is an annoying thing, especially when guys talk about movies and they're like, she's so fuck like all oh, Susan Sarandon and Rocky Horror or tits and everything. Like, I know that there, <laughs> there's other there's there's ways of talking about movies that don't include you just telling people like how attracted you are to mm-hmm. uh, the characters that said I cannot leave that out. It is very important for me to make sure people know that. I mean, to have Andrew McCarthy and James Spader fighting over you, forget it. It's like Twilight. It's exactly like Twilight. Because Andrew McCarthy is so good at using his physicality to exhibit this really earnest and passionate longing. And it just drives me crazy. Yeah, he has kind eyes. 
they go a long way. I also like, I love, you know, because in the scene where he's talking to Harry Dean Stanton, like Andy's dad's character. What I love about this character is that, you know, he has the presentation of like the gruff, you know, out of work cowboy dad. But he also is pretty emotionally mature. Like he's willing to take what she dishes onto his plate and like he doesn't push it away. He doesn't reject it. Like I love the scene where, you know, she kind of yells at him. This is not, this is a movie where Molly Ringwald yells at men, which I also really like. And she's like, you know, she's not coming back. She didn't love us. We loved her, but she didn't love us back about her mom. And, hmm. and you can see that her dad, like he cries a little bit and then, you know, he just kind of accepts it and he's, he accepts that about her. And he just told Ducky that two scenes ago. This guy would never put that together for his own life. You can't force someone to love you back. Yeah, you can just tell him, but he can't tell himself. Uh, I love it even in there, that moment that they have that's so sad when she does finally make him reconcile and he like grabs her in a way that's really jarring for a second. Mm -hmm. And then he falls into hugging her and it's so, oh my God, just watching him come down. And he gives that, there's that part where he gives the Harry Dean Stanton smile, which you don't see very often. You just see all of his intense old man teeth. <laughs> I love everything about him. I was just wondering what you guys thought about his character not being able to get a job or not wanting to go in for a job or not keeping his appointments. What do you mm -hmm. think is going on there? Do you think that there's some substance abuse stuff? I think, I think he's depressed. Mm. I think like this man has like unchecked depression that he's filling with the booze or whatever, but like that he can't, that he has like opportunities that he's not like full fulfilling. I've had like bouts of mania that are like, you know, I know I have to do a thing, but <laughs> that's that's interesting. So it's not just about like this is a this guy's broken. My I think I think my man is broken or whatever it would be about this guy's a screw up. He can't get his life together. It's more about this person can't get over this horrible wound. I mean, I think she said it was three years ago. Like I don't think he's going to therapy. No, I just think that's such a compassionate understanding of what he's going through because I think because we're seeing it through her eyes, there's just frustration about why didn't he get a job? Like, what's going on? I'm in high school all day. Then I go to the record store. I have to wake you up. Not that she resents it, but it's just something that's on her plate. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of when she yells at him, it's not get your shit together. It's mm -hmm. you need to deal with the fact that we have been abandoned and it is horrible. Mm. Right. It's not our fault, but it's something that happened. Mm. Yeah, it does feel like depression to me, just for, like, the lack of other details. And also, like, he is doing housework. I really appreciate that. He's vacuuming. Sometimes you're too depressed to do, go to a job interview and face rejection, but you're not too depressed to, to vacuum. Yeah. I wonder what he did when Andy's mom was still around. Do you think Andy's mom was the breadwinner? Do you think that he had a steady job at the time? Do you think that he was always kind of putting you know part-time work together i don't know i think yeah i think he probably had a job and it fell out when he went into whatever state he's in now when she left i think he suffered in the carter years and has been trying to get back on his feet ever since <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know i wish we knew a little bit more about harry dean um outside of the fact that he was jack nicholson's best man 
at his wedding, which is like an incredible thing. <laughs> oh, you mean in re- in real life? Well, you know that Debbie Harry was in love with him. She had such a. Cr- I mean, Debbie Harry does not kiss and tell in her memoir, except for Harry Dean Stanton. That's amazing. <laughs> it's like I was in love with him when I met him. I could not believe it. I said to my friend, "Back off, he's mine." And they dated for a hot minute, but uh, what? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Harry kicks ass. For sure. I didn't realize that that was a part of it. They had a little thing. What is it about him? Like, there's just, like, I, again, I think Paris, Texas is such an incredible role for him. And he just, there's a lot of that movie where he doesn't say a word. But he, I think, is, like, the rare man, especially of that age. I think he was in his 50s and in these iconic roles in the 80s where his face just expresses everything everything like you just feel like you're seeing so much of of what he's feeling i think well i get the sense too but also that he is enigmatic yeah it doesn't seem like there's like a straight through line like even in interviews i've heard interviews with him like long interviews with him where he says nothing <laughs> his openness lends itself well to john hughes restrained writing which i think this mm. movie is a great example of where it's not overwritten none of these characters there's things that you don't learn about them yeah there's perhaps more breathing room when it comes to Blaine than the others but there's space built in to project to interpret it's a really nice fit for an actor like that who has so much to bring yeah I think that that's why I default to thinking that he's just in a long-term depressive episode is like I don't get the I don't get the well because I'm projecting (laughs) because I'm projecting my own shit but like I but I think that I recognize that like this doesn't seem like this man clearly loves his daughter clearly wants wants to be present acknowledges how he is incapable of being present and that's a pretty cool thing that he does a couple times as he acknowledges that he's like I wish your mom was here so she could she could hear you in the way that you need to be heard like he knows what the needs are and he in theory it seems would be the type of person who'd be able to at the very least like get some job to help to provide for the family but is just just incapable well there's also the economic there's just the reality of he it would be great if he could vacuum all day and be Andy's mom and dad but they have to make money and she's got a job and he's got to probably put a bunch of jobs together yeah they don't have the luxury of just being parents or just being caregivers. Mm-hmm. I see him doing night fertilizer work, like Kurt Russell. <laughs> <before>. Night fertilizer. <laughs> yeah, he was working at the fertilizer plant, I think, secretly at night. She thought he was cheating on her, but he was getting some extra cash at the fertilizer plant. It was very romantic. Oh, my God. Do we have any wrapping Pretty and Pink thoughts before we get to the question? Well... I think that the Ducky Blaine binary <laughs> has dominated the conversation around this movie. That's true. And I think it's really not a question at this point. Would she end up with Ducky? Ducky annoys the hell out of her the entire time. Why would she suddenly have a revelation? Because they're the two last boys in the world. When they reconcile at the prom, you're happy because they're making up because they're friends and they're 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 over their fight that's the only energy that's going on there if they kissed you would never stop throwing up it would be upsetting (laughs) well yeah because again it's like it's total sibling energy and you feel like i just feel like he's like a little brother and this squares with the idea of him being gay too is like 
he doesn't want her to get with this guy because then it won't be the same and she'll be off having a relationship and being an adult and he'll be left dancing around in the record store, which is just hard when that happens. Yeah, and it also just feels like a more personal rejection because she's going with someone with a completely different class and a completely different strata and not just in terms of popularity, but in terms of, you know, cultural acumen that Ducky listens to the Smiths. Blaine does not. Right. He sure does. And that's what I was talking about with regard to class earlier is like for her, like in one way or another, it's like there's opportunity. I'm not saying like she's doing this in an opportunistic way, but like to be seen outside of her class in one way or another is like some sort of great, is some sort of acknowledgement because this is something she's very internalized. Whereas for Ducky, it's a huge threat because like the idea of any getting you know she brings this up to him in a in such an amazing astute amazingly astute way in the movie where she she suggests to him he's trying to fail high school because he's not ready to move on in some way she's a person who's trying to expand her horizons in different ways and be seen and see herself outside of the ways that she sees herself and she's afraid other people see her whereas like ducky is just going to be he's going to be ducky like that's what ducky is <laughs> that's that's who ducky will be for a while i don't even know if she's thinking about that as much as she's just trying to get shit done like take care of her dad go to school get the best possible grades in the world so she can get a scholarship otherwise she won't be able to and that that scene with the principal when he's basically implying like behave yourself because you're lucky to be here because you know you can't afford this this school anyway and she's like that's a beautiful thought (laughs) (laughs) i don't think it's that she's necessarily open to horizons as much as she knows that she wants things that she doesn't have and she's trying to figure out how to get them. Yeah. Sarah, where do you think they end up? All right. So, yeah, I I think that Andy and Blaine were together for a while and then kind of drifted apart because of college. Honestly, I think she's, like, had a couple of marriages and traveled around and, like, run a bunch of few different companies and just, like, I think she just hasn't maybe been anchored to, like, one particular life or life partner all that much I don't know I think she's one of those people where like every five years you're like what's Andy doing and you're like oh she's she had a kid I didn't expect that and she's raising goats she's into goat fibers now I didn't expect that and then five years later she's gotten really into historical photography and you're like oh (laughs) I I completely agree she seems like someone with multiple pursuits that bookend each other in other words she has Blaine now she enjoys Blaine then she's interested in something else and she pursues that and then she pursues something else it's not that she she, she's also someone who's so emotionally capable of expressing what she is over that seems like she can make clean breaks Mm. when things don't work out with her and Blaine she is interested in something else she pursues it she gets it and so on until she has a kid and then I think she's all about the kid yeah So I should mention something that many people have pointed out as I was tweeting pictures of James Spader this morning. Like quite a lot of people, by which I mean at least six, were like, he looks like Princess Diana. He sure did. And he really did in that movie. Or she looked like him or something. They just look like each other. Maybe Princess Diana faked her own death and became James Spader. Oh, here we are. Okay, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) People spent a lot of time on there. I mean, think about Iona's hair in that first scene where, you know, when she put all that gel in it and then there was a beehive. Well, that must have been a wig. Um, No, Steph had access to a round brush and a Vidal Sassoon. 
I want to say actually either Nexus or Paul Mitchell products. Paul Mitchell for sure. I just love that he showed up to school in like a white linen suit and a and a butt and a button down shirt like open to the to the navel. Yeah, for smoking cigarettes on like the stairs. Let's all say <laughs> where he looks like he is. I think he looks like he's at Cannes with his fifteen year old girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> no, there there are the archetypes of villains that are just jock bullies. Mm. This guy is such a cool junk bond. You know, he's just such a he's such a cool character. He's so distant. And you know he's bad at sex and that makes him sexier. <laughs> <laughs> How does that happen? We know that Harry Dean Stanton was the dad in this movie. Yes. Who do we believe was the daddy? Iona's wigs. <laughs> I was just thinking of where, what Iona could do with Andrew McCarthy's wig in that last scene. How could she could style it? <laughs> well, that would go with her Don Johnson outfit, I feel like. <laughs> it sure would. <laughs> Andy's the one you want calling the shot. She's the yeah. person who, when there's chaos, you go to her and you go... What do I do? Or and and even if she doesn't have the answer, she'll probably be the the one most likely to know what the hell's going on. And if she's mad at you, she'll tell you, and she'll tell you exactly why. Mm. And her explosions, none of them are irrational. None of them are hysterical. None of them are. Oh, she's crazy. She's so mad, or she's got a temper. Right. She has the confidence of a traditional sort of masculine patriarch when she is mad she's expresses herself like a guy that says i've been done dirty and that's not okay yeah i think like this movie feels like it's really about molly ringwald playing a character who's very smart and capable and wants to live you know the kind of life that she feels that she is within her grasp and is surrounded by men who are all lacking in one way or another. And I feel like that is appropriate to the Molly Ringwald and John Hughes relationship. Because, like, he did some really good stuff and some bad stuff. And, like, he was lacking. But he put her in movies. And I am grateful for that. And, all right, the daddy is Marilyn Vance, who was the costume designer. Mm, that's great. I love that, too. Because... There are two pieces of wardrobe, one I still have in circulation, that are directly inspired by this movie. One is some suspenders, which I have no idea where I found to buy them when I was a teenager, but I bought them, and I wore them, and I looked great, and I was both behind and ahead of the times, unfortunately. <laughs> and the second is this beaded cardigan that is like a black and white version of the beaded cardigan Andy wears. And I was watching this movie and I was like, that's why I bought that cardigan. Yeah. <laughs> Hadn't realized it, but that's where it comes from. And just, I think that teen movie clothes are very hard to do. Like they often feel pretty lazily done, you know, and if they're not lazy, then they're like an outfit, but not something you can really imagine a teenager ever having the means to put together. And like, these are great clothes and they all look plausible to me. Like, like you know, James Spader's Miami Vice outfit. It's like, yeah, it's ridiculous. But like, would that guy wear that to school? Yeah, I think he would. <laughs> and I accept it and I love it. Yeah, the, the costumes are impeccable. Ducky looks amazing. Every time he you does. see him, yeah. he looks so great. His layers are on point. He's got 
creepers. His hair is perfect. Like, he can turn a look, that kid. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? Like, whatever areas you're lacking in, like, asynchronous development is part of being a teenager. And, like, you clearly yep. know what you're doing with clothes. So, like, just keep working outward from there. He'll be okay. He'll, he's just a couple decades behind everyone else. He'll pull out of it. His, as I said on Twitter, his prom outfit feels like it's out of what we do in the shadows. And I love that so much about him. <laughs> like, he looks like a classic, eternal being when he's at prom that is him at his best I feel like he looks great and John Cryer is amazing in this and when you were saying what happens to everyone Ducky's a comedy writer I've, again I've met I've met Ducky yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. I know at least three did he become a Simpsons writer no he didn't go to Harvard he wasn't rich enough <laughs> he went to UCB he did well there <laughs> oh or he went to uh it was the 80s so he went to Second City and he was in Chicago anyway so Yep, that makes sense. And he once kissed Catherine O'Hara. Uh, ideally. So my my daddy, I'm going to not go with Thirsty Daddy this time. And if that was the case, I would easily go with James Spader. We've covered that ground. Mm -hmm. But I want to go with Iona, not because she's competent in many ways. Outside of running that store, that's really great that she's doing that. But like she's 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 not like a daddy in her uh, in her overall disposition. But she's a great friend to Andy. And I love that a lot. And mm -hmm. like she's running that store and she's um, chasing after things that she loves and enjoys. And I would love for more. I would love for her to be third billing in this movie. <laughs> when we think about it. I'm changing my answer. The daddy is Andrew Dice Clay. He <laughs> is in charge of who gets to come into the new wave nightclub that is all ages. Is the nightclub called Cats or is it called Eats? Is it? I always thought it was Cats. I want to go. It's all ages, but... But not Ducky. Not Ducky. <laughs> but he's like friends with Ducky, but he wasn't one allowed Ducky to come in. <laughs> Ducky's not cool enough. Look at that kid. He did not put enough effort into that outfit. He's not cool. Aww. He needs to be wearing seven more layers. <laughs> he needs to be wearing more leather, as a Andrew Dice Clay would want. <laughs> Andrew Dice Clay is someone you could see in this movie, and if you didn't know that he was like a thing at the time, you'd be like, oh, that's nice. But like, he was a thing, right? Like, he was a phenomenon, this guy. He's great in this movie. It was nice to see the Dice Man. What can I tell you? Julie, have you met Andrew Dice Clay? Not yet, but God willing, you know. <laughs> everybody thank you so much thank you so much for joining us in this episode of wired ads thank you to julie klausner of course for uh, being on the show it's so so nice to have you here thank you to carolyn kendrick for producing the show for making it sound so good um again uh we're all in sort of disparate places recording on phones <laughs> recording on random pieces of tech because you know we're spread throughout the country right now so she's doing the best with uh with what's available you can find carolyn at carolynkendrick.com. She has an EP called Tear Things Apart. You can find us on social media. You can find us on Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash Wiredads. That's it for this week's episode. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that we're doing this all together. We appreciate you and I hope this finds you well. Thank you.